Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to the rest of you guys. Welcome to episode 48 of Bitcoin Magazine Live. We are coming up on the big 5-0, but I'm super excited to introduce our guest for today and an instrumental teacher in my own Bitcoin uh, knowledge, Stefan Levera. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm, I'm always uh, happy to chat with the Bitcoin Magazine team. We're, uh, we're excited to have our conversation today. We're going to be diving into why Bitcoin is multifaceted and multidisciplinary. And I don't think this could come at a better time after everything that we've been seeing around the world. The use cases of Bitcoin are expanding before our eyes. Those who are not aware of how it could help them are now being shown the way. This is the way, as uh, we said to Baby Yoda. So, Stefan, could you help for our viewers maybe uh, define a little bit what are the different facets of Bitcoin that really speak to you? Sure. So I have long been interested in Austrian economics. So I think that was probably the first angle that appealed to me for sure. And so that was this angle of sound money, this money that's outside the control of any particular government. And it's like this idea of money that is coming from the bottom up. It's spontaneous. It's not top down. It's not the king or the government saying this is the money. It's the people deciding what makes money. And there are various aspects of that. But let's, I guess, spell out some of the different ways in which you could view Bitcoin. And so, of course, there's that economic angle. And then there's also the technical angle. And so that these are probably the two biggest angles that I talk about on my own show, my podcast. But I would say that you need to have a decent understanding of economics and of technology for Bitcoin to really make sense to you. And if you only have one without at least a basic understanding of the other, you're probably not going to, you could, you are, you are in GMI. You're not going to make it <laughs> because you might get stuck down some shitcoining pathway, or you might get stuck down some blockchainer pathway, or you might get stuck down some other, you might essentially go barking up the wrong tree. So those are, I think, the high level two ideas that you or concepts that you need to learn about. And of course, inside that, there's all kinds of different topics that you might need to have a basic awareness. So uh, awareness of rather. So let's say networking, distributed computing, a little bit of crypto cryptography. Uh, you know, and these are some of the angles. And then so then you might also think a little bit about the history, right? As in, what was the history of the cypherpunk movement? What were they doing? What were they trying to achieve? Why was it that it took all this time? And why? what made Bitcoin special? Why do we believe Bitcoin would succeed where some of these other projects and ideas either were just did not really pick up steam or they failed? Why was that? And not just the cypherpunks, but also that broader liberty movement. There were things like e-gold and liberty reserve and things like that. So those are a few angles. And then... We also have to think from a political point of view, what is the likely pathway for adoption? What are the likely ways that this thing may go about? And that is useful to think about as well when you are trying to, in your head, game out what are the likely responses from politicians, from regulators, from everyday people. And I think it just comes down to thinking about what is in each person's self-interest. Because generally speaking, if you're trying to make predictions about how people will act, you generally, you're not too far off the truth if you're just thinking, okay, what's in that person's interest? What is their interest? What is their incentive here? And generally speaking, that is also why as a system, Bitcoin works. Because for the most part, it channels your self-interest into its own self-preservation. That as you join the network, you become a hodler and a stacker, then you have an incentive now to teach other people about it because it's like a network. And this network becomes more powerful the more people who are part of it and who are using it. So those are a few angles. And then even inside the Bitcoin world, and that, that some of these ideas almost map into ideas inside the Bitcoin world because we have this whole privacy community and that there's like an aspect of how do you be private when you're using your Bitcoin? What are some of the privacy techniques that we must keep in mind? We have to think about what's the best way to secure our coins. And so that comes into the conversation around, okay, 
you know, phone wallets, hardware wallets, multi-signature, what techniques do we use? What kind of backup and recovery uh, strategies do we employ? And those are just a few ang angles there. Then you might also layer in this idea of, well, what's going on politically and, and from a regulatory point of view, what's happening in that aspect and what's happening in that sphere. And so I think those are a few examples that I would give in terms of what are some of the different facets of the Bitcoin world. There is also obviously a social element, right? So, you know, we have Bitcoin meetups. I was a co-organizer of Bitcoin Sydney. So back when I was in Sydney, I'm not there anymore. Uh, obviously Bitcoin Magazine and BTC Media hosting Bitcoin 2022. So I'm excited for that. I think conferences are a great part of the Bitcoin ethos and community. And it's how a lot of people learn. So that's a social element there. Also, you know, you could arguably say, hey, there's a little bit of psychology in this too, in terms of what does adoption look like? What causes people to adopt? And what causes these big waves up and down that we've seen over Bitcoin's history, where we have seen these huge waves up and then these huge, you know, uh, crashes down and then sometimes a, a, a relative period of just doldrums or a less, less activity uh, before then another big burst of energy and activity in the space. So I think those at a high level are some of the high, the high level facets or aspects of Bitcoin and its technology. If those of you who don't believe when we post Bitcoin fixes this in a response to quite possibly every and any situation, just go ahead and rewind, re-listen because Stefan just laid out everything that Bitcoin fixes and that's just scratching the surface right now. I do want to, to make mention, use code YTMAG, get 10% off of your tickets to come down to Miami, April 6th through the 9th. Stefan will be speaking, Jordan Peterson will be speaking, Michael Saylor, Nayeb Bukele will be making another announcement. So you're not going to want to miss that. Um, and there was one thing in particular, Stefan, that you actually said that really stuck out to me because I think this gets lost when new people come into this space is the history. The history of how Bitcoin came to be in the technologies that were attempted and failed that paved the way for Bitcoin to exist. And I think when you really understand some of the things like Bitgold and Bitcash that came before Bitcoin, you kind of can't look at the rest of the crypto market in the same way, because there are so many, in my opinion, mistakes that happens with these altcoins. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the conversations that people have with you about, hey, why, why don't you like this token? And what are some reasons why you are a Bitcoin purist and not necessarily a fan of the latest meme coin. Yeah. So there's a few things involved with that. I think one of them is just that we are using this token, but the token has to have some value for people to want to hold it. And there needs to be a reason for people to hold it. And generally in the case of money, you don't need a definitive reason. You're just holding it because of uncertainty. So this is coming back to that uncertainty. We, we hold money to reduce future uncertainty. So we have a reason to want to hold Bitcoin. And that's because we're using it as we're thinking of it as a money. And now, okay, fine. People they have their own ideas about that. But the broader idea is it's, we can see it as a form of money that operates outside the purview of any state. And so that's the important point really to bring home. And so you also have to layer in a bunch of other things into that also. You have to think about, well, is that system genuinely decentralized and distributed? In, in many cases, altcoins are not that. They can be shut down or they can be centrally stopped. And so you see that often with these hacks that happen. And then all of a sudden, oh, well, they were able to stop the network because the government told them to. Oh, what a surprise. In the case of Bitcoin, there is no person you could point at and say, hey, take this, stop this network. We don't like it. Stop it. Sorry. You can talk to, and it doesn't matter who you're talking to. They just can't, you can talk to Michael Saylor. He can't stop the Michael, he can't stop the Bitcoin network. And he's probably one of the biggest holders. Uh, so that's an important aspect. I think the other aspect is just that Bitcoin is genuinely trying to take the control of money outside anyone's control. Whereas with altcoins, it's, it's oftentimes, Okay, so there's a spectrum, right? So there are some that are just straight up outright scams, right? Like the BitConnects and OneCoins of the world or whatever. And then you've got others that are really more in like a grifting category. They're just kind of promising things off into the future that are so unrealistic that they, but they 
kind of it might sort of if you really squint hard and imagined maybe okay yeah there's a reason for it um i i think we are moving into a world where bitcoin will be seen as the overall money now do i see a temporary future for things like say stable coins maybe i could see that outside of that i don't really see a lot that i'm really interested in and i think the thing to understand is of course okay somebody could to, to steal man right somebody could come back and say well hang on look at all these people who are using these other coins in my view i think a lot of that is just driven by leverage and uh, more of a gambling mindset now to be clear there are gamblers and speculators in the bitcoin world too but i think there are many many more people who really see a long-term future in bitcoin uh, that they see this long-term idea of sound money and they see why there's this philosophical economic and human rights perspective around bitcoin and so when you bring it to that level and you think about what is actually achieving all of these things right it's provably scarce it's decentralized it's accessible it's scalable in in, in uh, you know in the way that bitcoin operates without losing its qualities that make it special to begin with and I think when you really add all of those things together, it's only Bitcoin that actually passes the bar. And that's, that's why in my view and you know, over at Swan Bitcoin as well, where I work, we, we just have that view that it's, it is the only investable grade. It's, the only, it's, it's in a class of its own. That's how I would summarize it. You are in a, a, we are all in agreement on, I think, the hardest, soundest money being Bitcoin. Um, there's a point that I kind of want to push back on uh, which you brought up how Bitcoin is the most decentralized, which I do agree with that. However, as products are built on top of it, for example, exchanges, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen announcements, hey, all of you leaders of exchanges, all you CEOs that allow people to purchase Bitcoin, stop allowing people in Russia to do it. And regardless of whether you agree with the response or not, the response was true to, I think, Bitcoin's core ideology. But as we introduce more of these businesses on top of Bitcoin, do we lose some of that decentralization? And is that an acceptable payoff to continue to build on top of this technology in your eyes? Good question. I, I see it like there's the regulated world and then there's this whole peer-to-peer -peer market world with Bitcoin. And so that peer-to-peer -peer market world really does operate just with no real controls for like for relatively less, like much less controls than the government uh, would like. And I don't see a fundamental way of that being stopped. And so I see this, like there will be lots of regulated entities, but also lots of peer-to-peer -peer, less so regulated ent entities operating in the Bitcoin world. Now, is there some risk to individuals with things like KYC and with things like being able to be shut down on a centralized platform? Yes, but at the end of the day, you'd rather be holding Bitcoin than not. You'd rather be, and so while yes, you might arguably say, okay, uh, it, it, it would be theoretically better if everyone was just, if, the, if the, everyone was going fully peer to peer, I think Bitcoin just wouldn't be at the level that it's at now. And so there is just this, yeah, interesting trade-off balance there that you see because people fundamentally, the return to being in operating in a white market, in a regulated market is just so huge because there are so many people who are only willing to act, interact with that aspect of it. Now, there are others out there who are interacting in both, both sides of it, right? And you might have, let's say, kind of operating in the more decentralized, uh, even more decentralized world. Um, but I think the, the fundamental promise or idea of Bitcoin, I, would, I, I think, is that so long as there are lots and lots of different options with who you can choose, then that means you have more and more choice. And so that means you've got lots of entities who you could interact with or use as your service provider. And if you're not happy with them, well, then you can choose somewhere else and you can go to another country and use a service from another country. And I think we are moving more into that kind of world where that starts to become more feasible for people. And so it's a big world out there. And I think we, from the Western world, let's say, like out of the, 
Australia, US, UK, Canada, we tend to be very focused just on the West, but it's a big world out there. There's call it 200 countries out there. And many of them have differing goals and values and ideas about how things should operate. And so if the environment is not great for you in one particular country, well, you can go to another. And so I think that competitive jurisdictions aspect also really protects Bitcoin in a way, because yes, you're right that politicians in one particular country might come out very strongly against and others, President Bekele and others of El Salvador and, and, and let's say some of certain states or cities, uh, at least the leadership or the candidates for leadership in those states and cities are very pro-Bitcoin. So I think we will see that. And even in the US, we see uh, Warren Davidson uh, speak explicitly about the keep your coins or keep your custody act. I can't believe, I can't uh, recall the exact name of it, but he's out here talking about that. And you've, you know, so there are politicians who will have that view. And I think we'll see different companies and different states and different cities and countries who will offer uh, better alternatives for people out there when they're not happy with what they're getting. My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone, whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. You want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. Yeah, I, I think it is the Keep Your Coins Act, which is uh, KYC is ironically the acronym. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but it's very <laughs> clever. Uh, to your point, you said like a lot of different countries or governments or even Wall Street have different ways of what they think the world should operate. Um, I just finished reading. I was talking to Q before we got started here. I was just finished the book. Oh, my gosh, Q, what was I? It was uh, The Big Short and, uh, yeah. you know, learning about the 2008 financial crisis. And in that, you know, you kind of get an idea of Wall Street and kind of the game that they were playing, thinking that they were doing all the right things and basically selling um, more, uh, basically selling, uh, they were called credit default um, swaps, basically on mortgages. So basically it was a basket of really bad mortgages and they were selling them essentially like a stock on top of them. Obviously the house of cards came crashing down. Um, but Stefan, I'd like to hear your opinion. I know you said Bitcoin is just as much a technology. Is the volatility of Bitcoin not just a bug, it's a feature? And uh, I say that in means of when you look at the stock market or real estate or something else, um, you can kind of keep propping up these markets with the Cantillon effect of printing money and jamming them into these asset classes, keeping the wealthy wealthy and keeping you know the poor chasing uh, an endless hamster wheel or in the rat race, as it's formally called. Do you see Bitcoin's volatility as a way to shake out people that get over levered or, or cause harm in the markets by getting over levered themselves? Volatility is going to exist for some time to come. I just think it's one of those things that we all have to accept that it's a, a blessing and a curse that, of course, if you want the incredible returns of Bitcoin, well, you're going to have to learn to deal with the volatility. And that's not easy for everybody. I understand that because it's easy for those people who, let's say, grew up or are operating in an environment where they can have savings. But for people who are operating in an environment where they find it hard to save because maybe they're not like they're literally not earning enough i'm not talking about like western world people who are just kind of blowing all their money on drinks at the bar but i'm talking about there is a genuine equity consideration there but nevertheless i think bitcoin will benefit everyone longer term uh it's just that for some people it's going to take some time and 
I, I do, although that's with all that said, I believe Bitcoin is going to be like the, an incredible welfare improvement for everybody because it's just going to fix a lot of things that, that will make the world a better place. But I think the volatility is something that you need to adjust your mindset to as well. And so if for even of us, even those of us who came from the Western world or are in the Western world, it's more like you just need to learn to deal with volatility. And that's just, that's just part of the journey of becoming a Bitcoiner, I think, because how it is for many people is they might start with a toe dipping amount and then slowly over time, they increase their investment. And so that necessitates them learning to deal with the ups and downs and the swings. And so once you've been through a few years of it, or at least a cycle, then you tend to be in a better position because by now you're so much higher up than what you first purchased. And of course, if you're doing like we do at Swan with the Bitcoin savings plan or the DCA colloquially called, then you just channeling that volatility in your favor because you're just purchasing little amounts along the way. But it's, it is a blessing and a curse because it does, like you said, Chris, it, it flushes out uh, people who haven't been careful and conservative in how they do things. Now, an interesting topic in Bitcoin as well is like this idea of leverage, right? And I did actually, I did an episode with Dylan Leclerc from the Bitcoin Magazine team on this very idea, like, should you use debt to stack more coins? And if you are conservative about it, if you're in the right life circumstance, it might make sense for you to do that, but it is a risk because then you are risking getting wrecked and nobody wants to get wrecked on, um, you know, get margin called or uh, yeah, get their coins liquidated and lose that. So it, it is an interesting one. I think it, it just comes down to having a certain level of conservatism in how you approach Bitcoin. Although it's funny we say that because from an outside perspective, looking in, people might think, oh, look, having, you know, having all this Bitcoin as well is risky. It's like, look how risky you are being in Bitcoin. Why don't you stay in stocks and bonds? Like a typical high net worth person who has a financial advisor, they're probably very high percentage of them are just using 60, 40 stocks and bonds and not even thinking about Bitcoin. Although I'm sure they're hearing more about it and they're starting to think, oh, okay, maybe there's something to it. But they're probably also confused because they're thinking, oh, it's crypto and look how volatile it is, as you said. Yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, us with being uh, Bitcoiners or at least in this space, I'm sure a lot of us hold uh, more percentage of our wealth in Bitcoin than most people would be comfortable with. But I guess a point that I want to add is adjust if your position size. I know a lot of my aunts and uncles, they think I'm crazy for the percent of my net worth in Bitcoin. They're like, why are you doing that? Well, one, I'm young, younger than them. So I, I can you know, afford to delay retirement or whenever I want to stop working, hopefully one day. Um, but to their point, you know, if you're so nervous about it, start with a 0.1% allocation, half a percent allocation, 1% allocation might be considered outlandish to them, but just your position size that you can sleep at night while getting exposure to this asset class. And uh, I'll toss it over to Q now if he has anything to add on that. I mean, I, I can share a story from uh, just a couple of months ago when we were in Nashville. BTC Inc. is very generous to its employees and pays out a bonus in Bitcoin specifically. And I was explaining this to some friends from college that I had seen in Nashville and my friend's wife literally grabs her chest like, oh, I can't, that's so scary. Like, but it could go to zero. I'm like, well, it's not going to go to zero. And when it doubles from here, like I'm going to feel great because it, there are very few things that you can see double um, to your point, like volatility gets this negative connotation. I come from like a more financial background and saying a stock is volatile is a scary thing, but it often is ignored that volatility doesn't just mean on the downside. It also means upside potential. So there is a second layer to it that you touched on a little bit, Stefan, where for myself, I it took me taking the time to define what money is and really diving down that rabbit hole to not care about the volatility anymore. But I can only speak of my experience to that because everyone has a different appetite. Um, there are plenty of people that we deal with or that we've spoken to have 100% allocation. And there are plenty of people we've spoken to who said the only thing worse than 0% allocation is 100%. I'm curious your thoughts on that statement in particular of 0, 100, or somewhere in between. So I think any long-time Bitcoiner ends up being close to 
they may not be exactly at 100, uh, but generally they're close to 100. Or they might have of their investable net worth, right? So, I mean, if they own their home or something like that, then maybe not. But generally what's happened over time is because if you were in for a longer time and you didn't rebalance, meaning you didn't sell some of your Bitcoin to then buy more stocks or whatever, or as Michael Saylor might say, selling the winner to buy the losers. Um, but then if you didn't do that, then you ended up close to all in. And, you know, that may end up being the way things go for a lot of people. Uh, but I think it's important to sort of speak in a very general sense. But what, what I would say and the way I would think about it is should generally try to improve your skills and try to earn more money. And in some cases, you may need some of that capital inside your business because your business is how you earn that money. And so that's like how, that's what that's what's kicking off the cash flows that you are then stacking into Bitcoin. And so in those cases, well, then, no, it doesn't make sense to go fully 100% Bitcoin because you need that in your business. And you're not and like unless you're saying, well, you should sell that business and, all, you know, go all in Bitcoin. And, you know, so I think fundamentally what what makes sense for most people is to just think about what percent they could basically afford to put into Bitcoin and just hold minimum four years or longer, ideally 10 years or, or, or more if you can, obviously. But I, what I would say is minimum four years. Like you're putting this money away and you're not planning to sell it or do anything with it for at least four years. And I think that is probably a good marker for most people. And I think it, it, it is personal in that way because it's also a psychological thing so i think it is it's actually a common thing where people might overstate their risk tolerance their ability to handle a drawdown and only once you're tested then you really know and so in those times you're better off with an amount that you can sleep at night basically so i think that said though it's, it also comes down to conviction and having your own thesis about it and having a long-term thesis about what Bitcoin is and where it's going. So if you have read about Bitcoin and you've listened to podcasts about it and you really have a strong thesis about it and you really have a strong view of where it's going and you can see all the places it's being used around the world. We see Ukrainian refugees using Bitcoin to get out of the country. We see people in Russia who, let's say, they have now been cut off from all the Western world services like PayPal and Visa and MasterCard and things. And their family, I've, I've seen online stories of people saying, hey, we've got uh, an elderly relative, like a grandparent, and we used to send them money with PayPal and things, but now obviously that's all blocked off. And now what do we use? We use Bitcoin to send to them. And so it really, once you start seeing that potential for Bitcoin to be used and to not need this idea of the dominant world superpower, the USA, to back and control the monetary system, you start seeing this alternative, this, it's this parallel system. And so I think the deeper down the rabbit hole you go, naturally, the higher your conviction, and therefore, the higher your allocation in terms of your net worth, and not just net worth, but your time, your attention, your, your energy, it just goes to that. I mean, for me, I was fascinated by Bitcoin when I like I had that I, I think most people have that moment that that sort of orange pill moment that from then you just you just couldn't it just you couldn't pay attention to anything else you just you just were fascinated by this thing and so for me that that's just been my life since early 2013 basically so I've just been fascinated about it and so I think what happens is your time your effort your investment goes where your attention and fascination are and in some cases if that's because you are reading bitcoin books or articles or listening to bitcoin podcasts those are ways in which you found the conviction to increase your allocation yeah i mean it it's also a fascinating discipline because for so long like financial systems financial education was held under lock and key if you didn't have a college degree, you didn't know what questions to start asking and you couldn't really go down any sort of rabbit hole. Um, but given the information age we live in, it seems like Bitcoin is really meant to not be hoarded in the way wealth has been hoarded for millennia at this point. Um, 
talk to us a little bit about what are maybe one or two examples of things that you are most excited to see Bitcoin fix completely and how will it do that? So for me, really, it comes down to savings technology. As my friend Pierre Richard says, it's savings. It's savings technology. And of course, it's payments technology too. Uh, but I think that's the fundamental shift that a lot of people have not made. Because if you speak to most people, they don't understand how the US dollar works. They don't, they're not thinking about, oh, how does this work over at Fedwire and the clearing? And the, No, they're just thinking about the dollars in their account or the cash in their wallet. And that's it. So it just comes down to not having a good understanding of what that's doing and how it's being used to rob them because people work really hard for their money and then it just gets inflated away. And it's insane to think about, but that's really what's happening. And so that has become a lot more apparent to people and arguably the US dollar is still, it could still do well over the short and medium term because other fiat monies might do worse. So that's kind of an ironic thing where you might see nations who go through this monetary crisis, they start to dollarize. And we see people want to hold foreign money. And of the foreign monies, they generally like to hold the US dollar if they can. And so it's kind of this ironic case where we see the US dollar might kill weaker fiat currencies. And then who knows, longer term, I think it'll be Bitcoin versus the US dollar. And I, I obviously believe Bitcoin wins that longer term battle and that's not like a physical battle that's more just like a hearts and minds battle and that's what i really think this is it's it's hearts and minds and so once you see this idea of sound money as a principle that protects society and how it's going to fix and provide protections to people that previously were not possible that it just Bitcoin provides assurances that are simply not possible under fiat money. You can't have that assurance of a, set, a, a strict cap. You can't have that assurance of anyone can access this thing. That's just never been the case historically because of the technology not being possible. And now with Bitcoin, it's yes, we have the technology. This is it. Uh, uh, please go ahead. Yeah, uh, I guess, Stefan, I, when you see Bitcoin working, obviously, a lot of Bitcoiners are more libertarian minded or thinking of a smaller, uh, smaller federal government uh, in many parts. Obviously, you know, in conjunction with that, it puts a lot of politicians, I wouldn't say out of business, but definitely with a lot less money and capital that they can use for their jurisdiction or, you know, greedily for themselves. I guess, how do we see a cycle playing out? Because they're going to fight like hell. Uh, in order to keep this system alive. And I always joke, you know, Republicans or Democrats or whatever, politicians can always agree to spend more people's money, uh, you know, more <laughs> taxpayer money, you know, get more money granted to them from some other jurisdiction. Um, so I always laugh and say, you know, oh, is Congress going to pass the budget for the 79th or 80th time? It's like, of course they are. Like, they're, of course, they're going to raise the debt ceiling and keep printing more money and doing whatever they want. Uh, obviously, the allocation of it might be different state to state or country to country. But I guess, how do you see this game theory playing out if it goes more? of the peaceful route that a lot of the Bitcoiners talk about? Yeah, that's a good question. So the way I'm seeing it is Bitcoin adoption will be like a discipline enforced on all of us. And it will be like a discipline enforced on politicians that previously where they had this very cheap money spigot that they could access, cheap debt, government debt, bonds, they could access this very cheaply. And over time, as we come back to that hearts and minds point we were talking about earlier, more people will be holding their wealth in Bitcoin. And so the cost of government debt will rise and that will just force them to tighten their belt. And so I think it does come down to a hearts and minds battle in that sense. And crazy way to think about it, really not crazy, but it is this way. If as an example, Chris, if you, let's say we both had US bank accounts and you send me, or I send you a hundred US dollars, the total number of US dollars in existence did not change. It's not like the cash balance of the world changed. All that changed was me sending some to you. But in this example, let's say I send, now let's change the example. Let's say I'm buying something off you. I'm buying a hundred dollars of Bitcoin off you. And I send you a hundred US dollars in 
you send me that Bitcoin, the, the total number of dollars that exist in the world has not gone up just off that. Of course, there's fractional reserve banking and loans and all that. But what we're really talking about is the relative valuations here. Because if everyone starts to do, as we were just saying, buy, you know, set, sending 100 US dollars to buy Bitcoin, the stock is the same. The US dollar stock and the Bitcoin stock is still the same at that moment in time. What's really changed is the relative valuations. And so what we're talking about here is this process of more and more people mentally making that shift into a Bitcoin standard or at least holding some Bitcoin. And that's going to do most of the work. And so then you'll see all these people who have an interest in that Bitcoin not being taxed too heavily, not being outlawed, not being stopped. You know, we want things like the ability for people to hold their own private keys or run their Bitcoin node or do Bitcoin mining, all these typical Bitcoin things. And so I think there'll be some politicians who rightly understand how to capitalize there. And so they will see that, yes, government is going to be smaller. And that's why I think it does naturally appeal more to libertarian uh, politicians, or at least politicians who have some libertarian leaning. And they will be the ones who capitalize politically. And so... I think that's one angle. And then I think the other angle is, as I was saying, the competitive jurisdictions aspect. People will start to see that you can't just take people for granted. If you treat them badly, they'll leave. And where else did we see that? In the US. We saw that in states like New York and California having so many people leave and go to the likes of Texas and Florida and Nashville and other places that they didn't want to stay there anymore the cost was just too high and of course as great as california is as great as la is people were leaving because they just weren't getting a good deal they weren't being treated well and they left and so i think we will see that around the world we will see and we are seeing more and more digital nomad programs around the world there's probably 20 or 30 countries that offer this some kind of digital nomad program where you can basically prove a certain amount of income or pay an upfront fee, and then they'll give you the visa because they want you to be there in that town spending money or in their country spending money locally. And so that might provide jobs and opportunities. We've seen more jobs and tourism come to El Salvador with their Bitcoin law. So I think it's not crazy to think we'll just see this competitive jurisdictions aspect play out both inside the US and just around the world. And so I think that's going to be a big, big driver for this being a peaceful movement and a peaceful change and people seeing it like, hey, the time has come. This is it. This is, this is the time to really make a change and make the world a better place. As uh, one of those digital nomads who's technically my address says Los Angeles, uh, I spend as little time as I can in that city for many of the reasons you've listed and then some. Um, I do want to kind of present a a two-part question for you to stay on the topic of politics. Um, We get promised all the time, especially in America, uh, everything we want and then some as though a perfect world will happen if we vote for this politician. Uh, And never in my lifetime have I seen any one of those promises really come to to light. Uh, We have now started to see a big groundswell of new and aspiring politicians run on a Bitcoin platform. I remain skeptical. I have yet to have a politician follow through on their promises, yet I do also appreciate that these politicians are, for lack of a better word, pandering to us. How do you feel about, we'll stick to America first before opening up more globally about the way politicians are using Bitcoin and what Bitcoin legislation could look like in America? Yeah, that's a good one. And so you're right that there can be pandering. And that's part of the game of politics. And of course, politicians lie. That's not a, that's not a <laughs> really? surprise. There's nothing new here. We're not saying anything world-breaking here, world-changing here. The way I see it is they might try to use us, but we might also be using them too. Who's using who? Because when they mention things on major platforms, whether they are social media or news platforms or websites, and they get mentioned and they're talking about Bitcoin, they're also doing a little bit of our job for us. They're actually marketing Bitcoin. Even if some, in some sense, even if they're talking down about Bitcoin, they are still marketing Bitcoin for us. 
And that's another person who might be reading it, hearing about it and having that orange pill moment for all we know. So even if Brad Sherman, the most anti-Bitcoin politician I've ever seen comes out, he might be encouraging more and more people to actually adopt Bitcoin and his political opponents may latch onto that. And so, yes, I agree that at times it can look like, okay, our Bitcoin is simping for the politicians. Okay. That's not a good thing, but I can see benefits where that politician is helping to market Bitcoin, promote Bitcoin, or try to go out, go into bat for Bitcoin in cases where someone like say Ted Cruz has spoken about Bitcoin and the energy impact. And so I'm, I think we can, we can see a middle pathway where, okay, yeah, there might be some overly draconian regulation come in on Bitcoin as a result of all the back and forth. And maybe it does become a political football as many things do. And some of that, we can't prevent that, you know, it's just going to happen. But do I foresee fundamentally a Bitcoin ban happening? No. Do I see, you know, maybe more regulation coming? Yeah, probably. Uh, but I think it's just too difficult to actually stop this thing now. And I think enough people around the world are realizing that. And so I just see it like those politicians who can actually deliver on at least some of the Bitcoin promises will see gains and people come to their state and people come to their city and their town and their country. And so that's, that's how I'm seeing it. I see it like it's also important from a political perspective is to think about the typical things that play well politically. So an example, jobs, right? So if they can show, if they can stand up on, on stage and say, look, we got all these jobs coming here. We got all this opportunity coming here. Of course, we're going to be the Bitcoin state or Bitcoin town or Bitcoin county or whatever. So I think that's also the other angle. So coming back to that point I was saying before about looking at what's in that person's self-interest. Well, if you can make it look like, hey, it's actually in their self-interest to promote Bitcoin, then there might be something to that also. Um, but I certainly, it is a, an interesting one to weave because you have to understand, yeah, there's a benefit there, but there's also a downside and maybe some some Bitcoiners might be falling into a trap per se of supporting a politician or putting too much effort and money into that politician when that politician is out for themselves. They're not out for you, but it might just be that things that are in their own interest are also in the broader interest for everybody else. If they help to spur Bitcoin adoption or at least lower the taxes and regulations on Bitcoin, I am, um, certainly not a fan of politics, but it, to me, it's more like that saying, just because you're not interested in politics doesn't mean politics is not interested in you. So I can see in that sense, sometimes you've got to hold your nose and um, partake in certain ways. Um, but like you were saying as well, the other aspect is the competitive jurisdictions aspect of saying, hey, I'm going to go where I am getting a better deal. And if that means going to El Salvador, so be it. You know, I, I'm, I'm honestly, in the future, I'd be open to it. I'm, I'm not going to go down there and live straight away, but I'd, be op I'd honestly be open to it in the future. Yeah, Stefan, I think that's a great point. And, you know, aside from jurisdictional arbitrage of leaving the States or wherever you are to go to El Salvador, going where money is treated best, um, could you even see, I guess this is kind of me like, uh, looking into the future, kind of seeing, you know, I think it would be really funny if Brad Sherman or the Elizabeth Warrens, all of a sudden the people that donate to their campaigns are like, whoa, 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 you can't, you can't talk bad about Bitcoin because the people that are giving the money, whether it's the big banks or, you know, whatever company are like, whether it's a crypto exchange, like I know FTX gave a lot of money to politicians or uh, Sam Brinkman Friedman uh, gave a lot of money. But, you know, when your biggest donors start saying, hey, no, you can't talk bad about these things. It'll be funny to see, I guess, the tune uh, of what they're saying change. I guess, do you see that playing out, not just across nation states, but across states, counties, uh, you know, different things across countries as well? Yeah, for sure. Now, the interesting question to what you were saying is, how would that play with their current donors? And are there current donors who don't want that? So maybe they could be an existing banking organization or institution 
or it could be a person who just doesn't like Bitcoin. But I think fundamentally, coming back to the hearts and minds point, the more hearts and minds you can win, the less likely that is. And we're seeing now even some of the big banks start to say, okay, yeah, fine. You Bitcoiners were right, fine. We'll do some Bitcoin, you know, or they'll say, hey, we've been getting all this demand from our private uh, clients, our high net worth clients who want Bitcoin. They want us to do Bitcoin for them or provide it for them. And we're seeing that all around the world. We're seeing German banks do it, Singaporean banks do it, US banks are talking about it, Australian banks, the biggest Australian bank, Commonwealth Bank of Australia is offering Bitcoin in the app. So these are, these things are happening. And so you just, I don't think you can turn that tide back. And so this will then become more about who, who does it best, who's providing the best environment, who's catering to the Bitcoin political faction, if you will. Yeah, even uh, Jamie Dimon, even though he hates on Bitcoin, he makes sure that uh, JP Morgan Chase is getting their cut of, uh, you know, not the best uh, Bitcoin uh, services or ways to buy it, but he still has his, his hand in the honeypot, to say the least. Q, now over to you. Let, let's be real. Jamie Dimon, for whatever reason, I can't think of Jerome Powell's name, but there you go. Um, Jerome Powell, even I would even say Yellen. They're holding a bag. It may, they may not even have a whole coin, but they are holding some because it is a hedge. It is a hedge that if they actually mess up so bad and the entire system collapses, they, they want to live a lifestyle that they've become accustomed to. Um, I talk a lot on this show about how the people who are going to benefit from early adoption are those who are furthest away from the money printers, a country like El Salvador, a country like Iran, those types of countries are incentivized to go out of the way to essentially figure out a way to circumvent the dollar. At what point does the US, in your mind, what is sort of that final straw for them that you have an eye on for them to turn around and say, hey, we need to have some sort of adoption of, of Bitcoin, whether it's a full-blown Bitcoin standard or a legalization of the currency or, or whatever flavor you want to call it? That's going to be really challenging for a few reasons, the main, well, a few reasons, really, I think having government debt in US dollars is very beneficial to a lot of the current US government politicians and regulators. And so they may not be so keen to see that go. And I think they will try to push the CBDC thing. So they will try to do that angle. I, that's what I see. But that said, of course, there will be the Warren Davidson's, the Cynthia's, the you know, you know other bitcoin friendlies out there uh, and i think they'll be trying to make that argument internally and i think it sort of turns on how well that argument plays with the american public because if they can make the case that bitcoin is actually the more american money it is actually the american values money and that the us dollar as it exists today is maybe not the most american money that if that case can be successfully made then who knows, there is a chance there. I, I, now, I say that I'm an outsider, right? I'm not an American. I obviously you know, follow a, a little bit of what goes on there, but I wouldn't say I have the, the best you know, informed view of what's going on there. Uh, but I think it is also interesting because just globally speaking, of course, it's a big world out there. There's 8 billion of us on this earth. America is what, 350 or 340 million, something like that. It's, but culturally and monetarily, it is very dominant. And even in the Bitcoin world, it's very dominant in terms of how many users and people are coming from there. I mean, even for me, out of my podcast listener base, it's probably close to 50% of my listener base are coming out of America. So it is very dominant in that way. And so things that happen in the US, a lot of the other countries of the world will try to follow. So that is an interesting part. But I think to, to your point, Q, I think you, you made a great point. It's that, you know, those countries who have the least to lose by going for Bitcoin, they, are, they might be the ones to do this, right? And I like that because it's a clever reversal of the, uh, the typical Austrian economics argument, which is, the who, he who is closest to the monetary spigot benefits the most. And so you, you could sort of argue then the converse of that, which is he who is furthest from the monetary spigot has the most incentive to try and uh, get into Bitcoin. 
So who please, knows? Please uh, steal that argument yeah. and, and run with it because you can probably <laughs> articulate it a hundred times better than I could ever imagine it. Um, I, I don't mean to, to block you from continuing. I do respect the fact that while there is a majority of people who watch our show that are American, Bitcoin is not an American idea, nor is it meant to be an American technology. It's meant to be a global technology. Uh, so I do appreciate you you hammering that point home. I would be remiss to not take a moment right now while, while we have you um, to just very briefly and very quickly ask you to touch on the article that you wrote, how to get the most out of an in-person Bitcoin event. We have the Bitcoin conference coming up in uh, yeah, just sure. 30 days now. Um, a lot of our viewers will be there. A lot of our podcast listeners will be there as well. Uh, could you maybe just give a couple of points off of that article that you wrote uh, about what they can be doing to help set them up either to get a job or to be learning more about Bitcoin? Yeah, so just be open to new experiences and meeting new people because when you're at these conferences, they want to meet, they want to talk to other like-minded people. And so just don't be afraid to go and say hi to people. I think that's just the fundamental point. And people are generally pretty accessible that you can just talk to people as long as you're nice and you're, you're you know, you're genuinely have curiosity. They'll generally happily speak to you and help you out if you're if you if, if they sense that you're genuine i think that's what matters too right um of course people don't like the sort of cheesy networker who's just trying to have find an excuse to give out business cards but if you're trying to make a genuine connection with people these could be friends for life these could be your new employer they could be your new employee they could be people who maybe help educate you about some new technology or some new phenomenon in the Bitcoin world. And I think you can get the most out of these things by going early because there's always side events. So definitely go early and go for some of the side events, make some friends there. And then you like, let's say you're new and you don't really know that many people make some friends, go to some of the side events, which are a bit smaller and some of the people there are more accessible and let's say you, you you might be able to make some friends there and then they can become your conference buddies over the next few days that you're chatting with them and I'll oh, say, oh, which, which, um, which room are you in or which stage are you watching right now? And you can go catch up with them uh, and then monitor some of the chat channels. There's normally, thing, uh, there's normally like a telegram or a discord or something going so you can get into some of those and that helps you just find out what's going on and where, where the buzz is, what's happening, where is everyone? Um, what else did I say? Yeah, I mentioned, um, look, if, if you're thinking like, okay, it's a bit expensive, well, consider volunteering. A lot of conferences will happily, now, of course, you're working, but still, you might actually get, you might get to do and see more than you would have otherwise if you're just volunteering. So that's another thing to think about. Um, and also, what you'll find at these Bitcoin conferences in general, now, I've been to many of them, as you know, it's pretty much my job to go to these. So I've noticed that there are times where people don't necessarily just watch the talk they're kind of there to do the networking and catch up with people and make friends and make connections out there in the sideways in the side hall conversations because they know they can just watch the stream later and so that's a typical thing we've seen because the almost the ethos with many bitcoin conferences is that the material is streamed and put up online anyway uh, but it's almost like you still want to go now, of course you can make the argument, Oh, look, just watch it online for free. But I disagree with that as well. It's almost like, you know, and I made this argument in the, in the article as well. It's like saying, Oh, don't, don't go and see that live singer at their concert. Just listen on uh, YouTube or on Spotify. Well, okay. That's kind of missing the point here, right? Like people go for a reason. They want to see the show live or they want to network with other like-minded people, like other fans of that same person or whatever. So I think for a lot of people who are new, you might not know the right questions to even ask. And I think this is what you alluding to back, back to what you were saying, Q, is that when you're new, that first exposure to a Bitcoin event or conference or meetup can really vault you much further ahead. You can leapfrog ahead because you're catching up quickly and you're hearing all these discussions and conversations and there'll be all different levels, right? There'll be people who are very advanced level. And maybe when you're new, you can't jive with that because it, it just 
sounds like gobbledygook to you, but let's say you're a beginner and you find other beginners or you're talking, you go to the presentations and the events uh, that are more beginner focused, well, then you can really learn from that. And I've seen examples where let's say someone attends a Bitcoin conference and then later they go on to start a Bitcoin meetup or get involved back in their hometown. And so these are all ways that you can develop your understanding as well as your connections in the space, which might help you later on down the line. I, I love that. And I mean, I, I've told this story so many times, guys. So I'm sorry to beat a dead horse, but like for myself, I will never forget being in that room with Jack Maulers while he made that announcement for El Salvador. You could watch that a million times on YouTube. It's not going to be the same as being in that room, watching everyone stand up, cheer. It sends chills down my spine thinking about it. Um, if this finally convinced, if you have been sitting on your tail this whole time, Use code YTMAG. Stefan is going to be there at Bitcoin conference this year. Uh, who are you most excited to see in Miami? There'll be a few people who I've never met in person. So there'll be some who I've interviewed, but I'm keen to meet them actually to get a chance to actually catch up with them in person. Uh, yeah, so, and there's others who I just haven't seen for a while because of, you know, the last few years being crazy and all that. So, yeah, I mean, looking forward to, yeah, catching up with some people like, say, Safetyne. I haven't seen him in person for a while. Um, I've never met Michael Saylor in person. I would love to. Uh, who else? I mean, there's a bunch of people. It's, it's, I mean, the, the lineup is just insane. So, you know, looking forward to catching up with NVK from CoinKite. And, of course, my fellow Swans over at Swan Bitcoin. I'll be catching up with a whole bunch of them. So, Corey and all the guys and everyone from Swan Bitcoin. Looking forward to catching up with them in person. Many of them I've never met in person in the real world. I've just you know met them and spoken online, obviously. So looking forward to that also. Um, and yeah, just looking forward to the connections that you might make, the friendships that you might either make or build and grow upon that, build that. You guys heard it here first. Uh, Stefan is excited to see Sailor for the first time and, and introduce himself to me as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> It actually breaks my heart that it's almost two o'clock. Uh, my producer, Chris, messaged me saying we do need to wrap this up. And I, I'm floored how quickly this, uh, this came to an end. But Stefan, one final question for you. What, what does a Bitcoin standard in your eyes? You are king of the world. You get to make the rules. What, what is the standard? What are the, the laws you implement to make sure Bitcoin is everywhere oh well uh <laughs> well yeah i mean remove legal tender laws remove capital gains tax laws let anyone use whatever money they want um you know do whatever you can to lower the tax rates down uh cutting out whatever regulation you can i mean it's yeah i i see it like the best the best thing is is to sort of let let the market and let people make their own choices and their own decisions. And so I obviously come from that more libertarian mindset. And so I guess that to my mind is the first thing that comes to my mind is to try to get rid of those uh, top-down uh, enforced rules and let the rules come from a more bottom-up sense and have market regulation and, uh, you know, people to people making their own deals and uh, uh, arrangements about how they want to live and be governed. And I think, uh, we're seeing some of that with uh, this idea of free private cities and things like that, that are kind of more in that direction, not exactly that way, but, you know, I'm hopeful that we see that kind of thing. Uh, I, my prediction is that we'll see a lot more city states and smaller governance vehicles, if you will, or, uh, as opposed to these gargantuan mega governments of the world that exist today and are very common today. I think we might we might be moving more into that kind of world, but uh, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see, hey? Absolutely. Stefan, I want to give you the opportunity to uh, highlight anything that you have working that people can uh, find you. I know you have your podcast and all the work you do with Swan as well. So I'm sure our viewers want to keep on hearing what you have to say. For sure, yeah. So 
Uh, if you're interested to listen to my podcast, it's focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. I interview many of the leading people in the Bitcoin world. StefanLavera.com is the site there. And if you are interested to purchase Bitcoin, swanbitcoin.com. And uh, especially if you are a high net worth individual or a business in the space, swanprivate.com is the link for you because we provide one-on-one -on -one, uh, guidance. You're not going to get stuck in like a customer ticket hell hell especially if you are the kind of person who really wants to be able to pick up the phone or call at swan private that's something we can offer for our high net worth uh customers so that's definitely worth a look out there and we provide a whole bunch of free education as well because we're genuinely just focused on education and community so we put out free books and free content and material out there so a lot of that is out there, but yeah, basically people can um, follow us and keep up with us online on Twitter and things. So at Stefan Levera for me and at Swan Bitcoin for Swan. Yep. 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 Yep.